What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the You Know Ball podcast. I am your host, Trill Bro Dude, and we are back, and we are back to do another edition of the Resloppables. This time, another draft one. A, an original idea by Trill Bro Dude that definitely was not stolen from another publication. But we are here with Chucking Darts. Chuck from Chucking Darts. And this will also be running on his feed, so you can check it out. He has a great podcast called Chucky Darts. He talks about the draft, the NBA at large, and I always love having him on to just talk about these things. So, Chuck, what's going on? Oh, it's a lovely, a lovely summer night. This is, I think, maybe our third collaboration this summer, Trill. And I, yeah. time is flying. I, this is, this is tremendous. And I don't think you need to feel like you are ripping off any sort of publication there's not there's not a podcast in the world that would have come up with the name resloppables not a one that's true so you are operating on your own astral plane true so i'm yeah. super pumped to talk about this draft this is very different than the other thing the other re thing that is done by another uh, publication <laughs> but shout out to emart who actually is the one who came up with the name for the resloppables but i'm excited to talk about this draft as well because this was a loaded draft. For, honestly, one of the most loaded drafts of all time, specifically the second round of this draft, which we'll talk about, was absolutely stacked with quality players and one of the greatest players of all time already. So let's talk about the expectations going into this draft. Because first off, Bill Simmons is on the broadcasts. It was his. It was the last Bill Simmons, Jalen Rose. First off, that's that's the most important thing. Bill last Bill Simmons, Jalen Rose draft when they were doing the draft right. When you were able to criticize picks and it and everything wasn't you know talking about the draft prospects like dead relatives and all this sad stuff that they were trying to exploit. Like when they were actually just talking about basketball and. Honestly, I felt like this was one of the better draft coverages. One of the things that was built up going into this draft was who was going to go number one for the entire year. I don't know if you remember this. Do you remember winless for Wiggins? It was like the Sixers fans were, were doing it all throughout the beginning of the process. Like Wiggins was the guy for months on months. Everyone thought even I remember when we did the Resloppables 2013 draft afterwards, Chad Ford and Bill Simmons did a podcast and on that podcast they had mentioned like next year stacked it has Andrew Wiggins who's going to be the number one pick and that was like the anticipation for months really throughout the whole cycle until Embiid really popped off and caught everyone's attention he he had what Bill Simmons called one of the greatest workout I think the greatest workout he's ever seen in his life uh, and then he breaks his foot. So by the time we get to the draft, you have looking at the number one pick, the Cleveland Cavaliers have the number one pick and Wiggins, there was more skepticism around him than what I remembered because even on the draft, they were like, you know, I'm not really sure. Like it seemed like for a year he was the surefire number one. And then by the time the draft came around, everyone was like, I'm not really sure if this guy's the number one pick. Well, it was one of the, uh, you know, it's just an example of when your expectations are very, very high. If you come in at anything under those expectations, then you're going to get criticized at at least and kind of killed at worst. And it's all, honestly, it's a bit of a metaphor for Wiggins' career. Now, he's obviously in a great redemptive point now. Sure. And I'm 
very much looking forward to where he falls in our little uh, redraft at the end here because this draft was sort of, <clears throat> this was the same broadcast crew, to your point, to the most important point in framing this episode. This is the same broadcast crew as 2013 that we did. And when we did 2013, the narrative around that draft was just how bad it was and how no one wanted any picks. And when you and I actually dug into it, got a little sloppy, we saw that that wasn't really the case. It was just that players weren't really evaluated appropriately. And there were certain swings to take that teams were sort of gun shy to make because they were a little bit behind the eight ball and where the league was going. This draft in terms of anticipation was the polar opposite. There was hype, not just for Wiggins going in, but like Marcus Smart was a returner who would have been a top five pick the year before that everyone was excited about the whole cycle through. Dante Exum was sort of the international darling of the whole class because he had a great Nike Hoop Summit the summer before the year preceding the draft. And uh, then he didn't play, but he had so many fans. And I'm very interested to get into him as well. Chad sort Ford, of like a Chad Ford sharpish. Called, yeah, exactly. Because Chad Ford yeah. compared him to Kobe Bryant. Kobe like Bryant, he, that's he right. Him, he said he called him the young Kobe Bryant. So, and Chad Ford also said he thought there were nine potential all-stars yes. in this draft. Now, for comparison's sake, I don't know off the top of my head about 1984, whatever year Jordan went in that it, it was like him and Hakeem and like yeah. the draft was Mark like three Lee. days long and had a yeah. million people pick. Right. Maybe that draft produced like six all-stars mm -hmm. but an nba draft has never produced nine all-stars <laughs> on no, average no, no. you on average you get about three and a mm -hmm. really good draft is like four or more so 2003 you could tell though that everyone was yeah what's that it was 2003 1984 and uh 1996 are the ones i believe yes. that produced like five or more it was like the 96 had like Kobe, Iverson, Steve Nash, Ray Allen, like there were a, a handful, but generally speaking, you're right. It's usually like three, maybe in a, on a good year four. And I think actually 2011 was yeah. Kyrie, Clay, Kemba, Kawhi, Jimmy Butler. Yeah. So that had I don't know if they got another one, but yeah. Um, but there was just such a, it was almost like everyone in, who covered the league and I probably a lot of teams in the league too were just so relieved to be so excited about a draft class. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that the class was like, has necessarily met the hype, which again, we'll get to, but Wiggins at the top was, you know, his, his nickname was Maple Jordan. He, yep. he was thought of as such <clears throat> an unbelievable athlete at six, eight, who could score from the wing. This was coming into his season at Kansas that, yeah, that everyone was falling all over themselves. It's almost as though, you know, when we did our 2013 one, we talked about how the teams weren't really appreciating how valuable wings were because you saw in the top 10, like Alex Len and Cody Zeller and Nerlens Noel, like all of these big Steven Adams who had a good career and was good, but lots of just, big bigs went in yes. the top 10 and lotto of that draft 
And this year, it seems like the pendulum started to to swing a little bit. Where the only real big that goes high is Embiid, who's you know a complete complete like Hall of Fame talent. Yeah. Um, and then everything else, it's just this influx of wings. And I think in Wiggins' team saw um, a ball of clay in like the right way. Because right. by draft time, there was there was question about how polished he was, about the fact that he didn't really distribute the ball. Even after Embiid got hurt at Kansas and he took over, he still wasn't really a playmaker. Um, and he didn't have, like, the deepest bag. He was really jump shoot and then finish at the rim. Yep. But if you take that package and you look at how young he was, and then you take the NBA skill that, really had become his bread and butter in the eyes of analysts, which is very interesting, which is his defense. Yeah, that was they like thought, the thing that everyone this, talked up. Yeah. They you had here's this ideal sized, ideal sized, ideal athlete, two-way player with all of this room to grow. And so it was it's the sort of thing that like it's the same reason that it's hard to ever quit Wiggins, that like he stays pretty healthy. And he has a baseline of ability. You just need to put him in the right context for him to succeed. And now he's in one of the best contexts that he could possibly ask for. So, yeah. but all this time ago, you know, the, he was thought of as a savior. And yeah. I think even by draft time, even though he went number one, that perception of him as a savior, that had worn a little bit thin. And so maybe that's why opinion had come down a little bit because. You know, with him and Embiid, they're on the same team. Sure. So there's naturally going to be a little bit of comparison. And Embiid was just so much clearly the better player on that Kansas team. Like, not close. Who contributed to winning more. Who the better athlete was. Who had better overall feel on both sides. That, like, Wiggins didn't become an afterthought. But there was... Everyone was so eager not to take him number one because you had this other blue chipper on his team that was clearly better than he was. Yeah, and I also, just to put in context, like, where the league was headed at the time, the Spurs had just won the title, 2014. Kawhi Leonard wins yep. finals MVP. He is drafted in 2011, a few years before this, as kind of that mold of player, a defensive first guy who's hyper-athletic that, you know grew into the player that he became. He wasn't even a superstar by this point. He was like seen as like a very highly impactful two-way wing type that really popped during that playoffs. And he showed flashes of it in the year before. But as you said, that's kind of the way that the, the league starts moving at this point. And that's part of probably why the the reason why the Wiggins hype was was what it was. But then, as you said, you can see in comparison to Embiid on the same team, you have the fact that people are talking about Embiid. If it weren't for the back injury and the foot injury, it's like he's a no-brainer number one overall pick. They're pay they're comparing him to Olajuwon. You know, they're saying he's the can't-miss prospect, all of that stuff. By the time the draft comes around, I, I feel like the annoy the funny thing is, is that, like, I say that I like that they analyzed and criticized certain picks and, like, whatever. It's not to shit on the players or the prospects, but it's to just be kind of like, this is how I feel about this pick. This is why I didn't like it. But my thing with the analysis on this draft is that I feel like Jalen Rose and Bill Simmons did this thing 
where they kind of just go based on like the vibes of the player more so and like they 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 both they also val valued production as well i think that was one thing that those two really value but it is funny to me that it, it the the conversation around wiggins why i bring this up is like the conversation around wiggins is that is like he's not an alpha like he doesn't have like it's not like, oh, what you said, like, you know, oh, maybe his playmaking isn't that great. And when Embiid went down, you know, whatever, it was like, he's not a leader. And it's like, okay, but he's still very talented, clearly. And as you said, it took years. Even I'm listening to content about Jokic leading up to this draft in 2019. And they're saying how Andrew Wiggins is a bust. And this is three years ago. And I think as early as two years ago, people did view Andrew Wiggins as a bust. And as you said, he's in this redemption arc of his career because of the way that the league has moved because his perimeter defense has improved so much. He's improved as a shooter. And now we're at the point where I think that it will be interesting to see where he goes, but like the comps by the time the draft came around, he was getting were Tracy McGrady. Like it went from like, he's literally Canadian Michael Jordan to like, maybe we should have a little bit more realistic expectations. Oh, by the way, he's still like a multiple, he's going to be a multiple time all-star. Like, even though expectations had been like a little bit lowered, it was still like, he's definitely going to be probably a multi-time all-star, maybe a hall of fame talent, like, and like a high impact one that could like lead the league in scoring. So the expectations weren't as insane as they were, but they were still pretty high. And he ends up going one to Cleveland and everyone is thinking, does Cleveland even pick, like keep this pick? Like it's very rare that a draft is so loaded. 2014 is like this loaded draft that you said, like Chad Ford saying that you have nine potential all-stars. And he goes, and, and at the draft, they're saying, does Cleveland even keep this pick? And this was with the anticipation that they could get LeBron. And the idea essentially behind it is like, you got to get a win now player, which they ended up trading for Kevin Love. Obviously he goes to Minnesota Wiggins after this. But there is the big what if of like, what if Cleveland took, it's, it, there's really two what ifs at the top of this draft for me, which is what if Cleveland took Embiid, but obviously Embiid misses the first two years of his career. I don't think that they would have even taken that risk. I don't even think it's in the, the realm of possibility. The big what if to me is Jabari Parker goes number two, right? What if the Bucks just took Embiid? Because then you have a team with Giannis and Embiid, a very, very young, and obviously it's easy to sit here and say this, with Embiid not even playing a game until his third season and only playing like 30 games in his third season. But that's the biggest what if to me because I feel like Parker, another guy at the top of this draft, was seen as, if it weren't for injuries potentially, seen as a multiple-time All-Star, a potential amazing scorer-type talent coming out. And... I just feel like, I, I guess it's easy for me to sit here. We know what Embiid has become as a player. And then in addition to that, we also know that like, we, we're not GMs. Like GMs can't feel like, hey, I'm going to draft the guy who, the big guy who has back problems and foot problems and all this stuff. When I can get uh, another amazing talent at the top of this draft. And it's funny enough, Jabari's career gets derailed by injuries really and Embiid ends up being somewhat healthy compared to what we thought coming out. Well, right. And that's why you need to, like, you really need to be careful 
in both directions with how, <clears throat> pardon me, with how you value evaluate a prospect's like medical prognosis. Like you have to be careful if there are red flags, but you also have to be careful if you're only operating in a negative space, where if you're now just projecting all of the bad versions of what's going to happen to a player. Because you can't ever like truly predict it unless it's like Michael Porter Jr.'s back, which everyone knew was in deep, deep, deep trouble. Of course. And with Embiid, it was, it was you know, he had this foot issue or he broke it during the workout um, and he had had a back problem. There was definitely stuff there that could spook someone, but you always have to weigh that against how much is how like spooky is it to have the number one or number two pick and n not take the best talent in the exactly because it might feel okay in the moment to be like oh we ended up with Andrew Wiggins thank goodness but that like you're not guaranteed to even get an eight seed in two years with Andrew Wiggins on your team like you have to be sure that the guy that you're taking at the top is someone that legitimately projects to change your franchise. And what we've been saying about Wiggins, and we can talk about Jabari as well, because he was the one who, in, out of these three, had the most red flags out of the mm -hmm. three of them at draft time. Uh, there was enough skepticism about both of those two guys, Wiggins and Jabari, where I wouldn't have felt safe and secure that I had changed my franchise's fortunes taking them and that's how you should feel with a top two pick you should feel as though i have changed my franchise's fortunes and that's that's what makes this so interesting because again remember this is the top of a supposedly loaded draft yeah so when you get all the way to the top there should not be a whole lot of doubt that you're making really good picks and from this broadcast it seems like there's natural optimism whenever you actually turn the card in. You, there's, you know, we really nailed it. Yeah, everyone high fives in the in the war room. It's a ridiculous name for big <laughs> basketball players. But, like, everyone is self-congratulatory because, hey, we, we did it. We have this new blue chip talent. Everyone's so pumped. Um, but everything prior to the draft was a lot of doublespeak and a lot of indecisiveness. And for it just it doesn't add up. It's if this talent, if this draft is so loaded, you should be more certain. And the yeah. only one who would give me any degree of certainty in terms of the talent was Embiid. And Hinky, who drafted Embiid at third, was probably the only GM that could take this kind of risk because of his his plan. His plan was the year before. Obviously, they get two lottery picks this year. They have two lottery picks. Let's be bad for at least one more year, if not two more years. And if we can, we'll get as many cracks at these top picks as possible. Drafting Embiid knowing he was going to miss his first year for a guy that seemed at the time like he had a lot of job security, which obviously we learned that he didn't because he was fired less than two years after this draft. But that position is kind of unique in that like David Griffin was a new GM and obviously the direction that they went in resulted in them winning a title. Now, did they know they were going to get LeBron James at that time? If they did, 
then okay, sure. You take Wiggins and maybe, you know, Minnesota likes Wiggins and he's the guy that you trade for Kevin Love. And that's the win now player that you can get and into your system and help you win a championship within the next two to three years, which is really the goal when LeBron James is on your team. The Bucks, on the other hand, had even at the draft, they were talking up Giannis, like, he, like Bill had referred to him on the broadcast saying, you know, they have the Greek freak, like they have something to look forward to. When they drafted Jabari, he called it one of the best moments in Bucks history when Wiggins went one yeah. and let Jabari fall to two. Now, you talked about some of the red flags. What were the major red flags? Because the only thing, once again, while they were critical somewhat on this broadcast of picks and players, they kind of brush off, like Jay Billis, when he was analyzing this stuff, kind of brushed off the large majority of, like, <laughs> I guess you would say red flag. Like, when they talked about his defense, basically. He's like, yeah, he doesn't really mm -hmm. try on defense, and he's not good at all on that end, but it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. And then a few years later, famously, when he gets his second contract, he ends up on the Chicago Bulls, gets a contract with them, and he's like, they don't pay me to play defense. Like, so, so like... It, what were some of the other red flags with Jabari going into this and why did his career maybe not pan out other than the injuries? So, I mean, the injuries are certainly part of it. And I think we can forgive, like, it's okay to kill teams on draft night. It's tough to kill players sure. if you're on TV. I mean, because they're kids and this is their big moment. Um, one of the best moments in Milwaukee Bucks history. That that's a tough, it's a tough line from yeah. from Bill. But so Jabari, well, let's start with the defense, right? And this was not again. I wasn't analyzing the draft at the time of this draft, so I'm not going back and saying I I got anything right. But if you look, if you think about, he's it was pretty well known that he was going to be at the time, a tweener between yes. the three, four. And his game, his face-up offensive game is much more indicative or was much more indicative of like a Carmelo just sort of all around mid-post and in, and he can still shoot the three, but like uses his strength and his first step to kind of get by guys. It's the mold of a small forward. It's the mold of a wing, like a real NBA athlete wing. But he was so bad defensively, and he was also already kind of overweight. And he was overweight when he was at Duke, and then he got a pro trainer, and then he was overweight at the Combine. And then, I don't know if you noticed this, but at the draft, when he got picked, he gained weight over his highlight reel. It <laughs> said Jabari Parker... 6'8", 235, played the highlight, and then it said Jabari Parker, 6'8", 241, oh, right? Wow. Just over the span of a highlight reel. Not the first <laughs> highlight-related gag. I'm, in, I'm excited to reference from this draft. I, I but, did see a few, yeah. But it was, uh, like, that was just a real part of it, that that had not gotten under control yet. The reason he was thought of as a top three player was because he had like a bag and he could get you buckets. Sure. And you like, that's what they refer to. And he's like, always oh, a sure thing. Always oh, a sure thing. But again, like if there's something that sticks out in these first couple picks in the draft, it's how to properly characterize what a risk is and what a risk isn't. Cause it might seem like it is safe to take a player like Jabari Parker and 
not for nothing, but as an offensively tilted player, he averaged, I think, like one assist to two and a half turnovers. Had a negative assist to turnover ratio. So he was just, he was buckets only. And he was such a poor defender that when you put him in the NBA where the best players play two ways, how could you ever envision yourself winning with that guy like commanding 30% of your salary cap, which is what a number two pick projects to do. I just think it was much, in retrospect, it's much harder to envision an NBA team with him as a centerpiece on the wing matching up against other wings um, than it would be even for Wiggins, who even though he's this slightly less polished version of Jabari, there's no question he's a better athlete, and there's no question that he projects positively on both sides of the ball. That's why I've, I found all those debate, debates very strange and a classic case sort of of um, Wiggins didn't quite meet our expectations, so let's find someone else to love instead, which is a big flaw yeah. in thinking. And for Milwaukee's part, it was, oh, he's a hometown kid. That's a, that's what they kept saying on the broadcast. He's from Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> like he is not no, no 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 let's just get this out of the way they they kept saying this and bill said it multiple times and i'm like chicago that would be like if if i was on the the podcast and was like you know i'm I'm a new yorker at heart you know i grew up in philadelphia an hour and a half from from new york so i'm basically from brooklyn if you think about it and i just started <laughs> speaking in a brooklyn accent on the podcast like what in what world is a is a person from Chicago a hometown person a hometown kid when he plays in Milwaukee? I know they're not far, but it's an hour. It's what hour, hour and a half? Like it makes no sense. It's a world where a broadcast team fails to figure out what's interesting about the Milwaukee Bucks. They still <laughs> hadn't figured out like just how good Giannis was. Yeah. For I think Bill appropriately was like pretty high on Giannis, but he yeah. hadn't learned how to pronounce his name yet. And this was a year into his career sure. and he was on television. Yeah, like, he was like the Greek, you freak. just, you're exactly that. Like you just, that's what there is some nostalgic appreciation for going back and watching these drafts. It is sort of like comfort food, but man, there are just still so many blind spots um, and how the draft was covered and how it was analyzed. But that, that's sort of missing the forest for the trees. I just the other part about uh, the hometown thing is they said that Jabari, it it revitalizes the organization and just all these classic mistakes teams make. Oh, we want to be good right now, and you know we want to sell tickets. Like you know what revitalizes organizations and sells tickets is to take the best player. <laughs> just take the best player. Yeah, and exactly. if GMs want to avoid. They want to avoid getting fired. Your point about Hinky says it all. You never know when you're going to get fired. Your best player could tear his knee and the team comes in way under expectations and you get fired. The owner could sell the team and you get fired, which is why when you have a task right in front of your face at the draft, the task should just be add the most talent to your team every time. And that's why Embiid... I get being spooked, but it's why, as the clear best talent, he should have gone number one. Or, and, I mean, well, we'll get to him and Jokic. Or, but out uh, of yeah, these three, he yeah, well, have but gone. no one knew about Jokic. It's, I mean, it's just. Of course, of course, of course. It's not even worth talking about. Because, okay, so that's why the what if with Embiid going to Milwaukee is so interesting to me. I think the Cleveland situation is very unique for 
the first pick in the draft. Like outside of the eighties, when like you would get like free agent compensation for draft picks and like before like the draft lottery was what it is. The large majority of people picking at number one are not the teams that are contending for a title. And if the Cavs had any idea that they were going to get LeBron James in a week from now, which by the way, on the broadcast, they kept talking about, they brought it up. Like this was, you know, they even talked about Miami's salary cap expectations. They talked about Wade and Bosch making 20 million a year each. And how if LeBron goes back, that basically they can't get anyone except for Shabazz Napier, who they draft later in the first round here. And they just have no players really. And one of the things that they talked about on here was they basically kept saying, I don't think LeBron is going to leave the heat. They were like, the infrastructure's too good, Spolstra, uh, Mickey Harrison, Pat Riley. Like, they're not, he's not going to leave this great structure, this great organization to go to Cleveland, which was really funny because they seemed all seemed very confident in this. And then, as we know, sitting here years later, he goes back to Cleveland, he wins another title, gets them to multiple finals. So, I guess that I excuse Cleveland a little bit if they had that inside information, that knowledge that we didn't know. Maybe they knew Minnesota liked him, whatever. Milwaukee is the interesting one to me at two because not only could they have had Haddon beaten Giannis, but they had traded for Chris Middleton a year before this too. So they would have had all three of those guys on the team. Like that is, that is the most interesting what if to me because like, you go from a cool, fun, young team with Giannis, this, like, awesome prospect, and then you can add in another one with Embiid, and, like, who knows? Like, you can – who knows? Maybe if you're bad for one more year, you can get another great prospect in the next draft. And and this front office didn't last, didn't last that much, which is what Hinky was thinking, basically. But this front office didn't last that much longer. If I remember correctly, I think they only had, like, two or three seasons after this to, to kind of further your point uh, – before they were fired, um, and they drafted and, and Giannis. They Giannis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, like they yeah. had. Uh, if I, I guess it's easy for us to say now because we know that Giannis is one of the twenty greatest players of all time. It's easy for us to sit here and be like, "Well, they had Giannis." Well, like, okay, he had a really good rookie year, and he was an exciting young prospect. But I don't think that anyone saw, even at this time, anyone saw Giannis becoming what he would become. But the what if is so crazy to me because like you go from like a a team that now competes for championships and won a title and whatever to like to me that's like a uh, absolute powerhouse as long as Embiid stays relatively healthy with those three. I mean, what could go wrong with Embiid playing with an all-world defensive wing who shot <laughs> challenged? I mean, how the fit is just—it's just like a glove. I mean, I—it's literally just—I don't. It's I the mean, better version of the twenty, uh, the the twenty 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 one Sixers. Chris Middleton's the better Tobias Harris. Giannis is the much better Ben Simmons, and then Embiid, like. The, the fit with him being and Ben is, I know you're being tongue in cheek there, but like the Giannis is his I own am. level of player. What's going on guys. I am excited once again to talk about Philly sports trips and they have a great trip upcoming. The NFL season is like literally right around the corner. The Eagles just played their first preseason game. We are all very hyped. Jalen Hurts looked absolutely awesome. The defense is going to be dominant. Jordan Davis destroying in his first preseason game. I'm very, very excited. And we have a very exciting trip coming up to Washington, D.C. against Carson Wentz and the Commanders. Very weird to say that name still. I don't know. It will. I'll never get used to it. But anyway, 
they will be playing in Washington and they are trying to get a thousand Eagles fans to go down. Right now they have 650 plus and they're trying to get up to a thousand. So you will have travel accommodations on a bus. They're gonna get tons of buses to go down there. And then also you will have a great tailgating experience with other Eagles fans with food and drink. So definitely check out Philly Sports Trips in the description and book your trip today. We talked about it on our, our 2013 episode, but uh, this was just, this was the Bucks paying the Sixers back. The Sixers, the, the process Sixers, passed on Giannis kind of inexplicably to take uh, Carter Williams in that draft, two two or three picks before Giannis goes. And then Milwaukee has Embiid in their lap Noel, the, the next year. Yeah, well, I forget which one went first. Did they New Orleans Noel went six. Ten, right? Yeah, he went six. Yeah. And then uh, uh, Carter Williams went a few picks later. But then Milwaukee's like, well, we can't, I mean, we can't just keep drafting really great players so here here philly you take Embiid, and then we'll just we'll go head to head and let the chips fall where they may it was like an agreement of gentlemen <laughs> i i appreciate that actually now in retrospect it's interesting to see um so the overall once you get past the top three the top three were thought to be like these surefire guys like these guys can't fail they're yeah. gonna be like the guys right uh, of course we do this every draft Every single draft, it's like we come out, we all feel great, like, oh, the top three, the top four. This is a three-player draft. This is a four-player draft. Well, 2012 was a was a three-player draft, and Michael Kidd-Gilchrist was one of those three. And Jabari Parker was one of the three in this draft. You get past this, and then you have kind of what they called, like, the surprising part of the draft, where people really didn't know where teams were going to go. They had an idea of certain players, where they were going to fall, but... Then you get Aaron, you get the stretch of Aaron Gordon, Dante Exum, Marcus Smart, Julius Randle. So that's four to seven, which mm-hmm. on the on the panel specifically, I know that uh Bill Bill was a huge fan of Julius Randle and Marcus Smart. He was actually mad that Dante Exum was taken ahead of both of them. He thought that, and once again, valuing production, they were both very good college players. As you said, Marcus Smart could have possibly come out in the draft the year before he one of like, I can't remember the last time a guy was projected to be a top 10 pick and then went back to college. Like that does Mm -hmm. not happen anymore. Right. Uh, yeah, very, very rarely. Yeah. I, this was probably the last time, probably the last notable example. You like the only reason you'd go back is if you thought, and this is, you know, classic Marcus is if you think like, I'm going to be in the top three, like that's how good I am. Yeah. And so then it's worth it for me to go back. But yeah, it's probably not something we're going to see again anytime soon. Yeah, it was absolutely crazy. So so smart, uh, smart Randall go in that range. There's not really any sort of crazy, um, you know, standout picks in the rest of the lottery, except for, I would say, Zach Levine was the was the next one. Weirdly enough, the second round of this draft, which, which is what I kind of referenced earlier. The second round of this draft is arguably just as strong as the lottery, which is something that I don't think that I've ever seen before. Like this second round makes absolutely no sense to me how good it was. They ha- you're looking at obviously Jokic is the greatest second round pick of all time, multiple time MVP. Goes without saying. Jordan Clarkson was in the second round of this draft. Joe Harris, Spencer Dinwiddie, Jeremy Grant, Dwight Powell, like 
so many good players, even like a guy like Glenn Robinson, the third, who like was like a rotation wing for like six years, like significantly better than some of the players that were drafted in the first round. I don't understand was, how many so good, how many fucking good players went in the second round of this draft. And that, I mean, I think that is where if you want to historically go back and argue and stump for this draft as being like worthy of the hype that it was receiving, that's what you do. You, you play up the depth. Like sure. if you just, re you remove um, Embiid and Jokic, and even re remove the other starting bigs, which you haven't gotten to, Nurkic and Capella, who also went in this draft. Yeah. Um, this draft produced at least, and we can like debate more than this, but at least 10 legitimate starting caliber NBA wings, which is really hard to do. That is, now there are different kinds of wings across that spectrum. You have TJ Warren and you have Marcus Smart, but they both can play on the wing just in different roles. But they, to get that many guys at positions that are in such demand still in the NBA, um, who are starter quality, you know, starters generally now in the league make about 20 million a year. Like that is unbelievable. And that's, again, leaving aside other starting quality talent and two high level MVPs. But it, Crazy. again, it goes to show like you, you look at that top 10, again, this nine potential all-star draft, all this hype it was receiving and Exum, Smart, Randall, Gordon, those guys are all top 10 picks. Noah Vonley. And it's like, did any of them project to just like shoot well? Like, where could any of them like shoot the ball into the hoop well? <laughs> that's the sort of thing. That's what's so interesting about the draft is sometimes you really you forget what skills really like matter the most. And Marcus Smart is a great player and would go top 10 in any draft. In this draft, sure. who knows? When we redraft, he might go three. But he's going to be very high. There, he's going to be high. But there's just something to be said for making sure that you you draft players who can shoot. Because if you're not one, if you're not the best player on your team, even if you are the best player. But if you have to play off of other talent in the NBA, you have to shoot. And that, I think, was still true in 2014. I think that's something we could still say teams should have been cognizant of back then. Bill Simmons was saying it on the broadcast. Like, he had said multiple times, like, if you're a point guard, which is weird because he loved Alfred Payton, and that was the big knock. And he loved Marcus Smart. And those were the knocks on those guys was that like the shot and like, you know, Smart's come around and become like a, a decent shooter, at least uh, a fairly inconsistent one. But, you know, yeah. like Alfred Payton was the was his guy on here, which was weird that he loved him. And his main criticism was like if, if this was the year before the Warriors won their first title, but like. We knew the importance of shooting because of exactly what you just said. When you need guys to space the floor, guys to play off of stars, the large majority of guys you're drafting aren't going to be number one options that have the ball all the time. So, and even then, it's a useful thing, unless you're Giannis, to be able to shoot. <laughs> like, it's kind of a no-brainer. <laughs> like, like there's, there's exceptions to this rule, but the large majority of dudes who are on-ball creators are also good shooters. 
And it is weird that the, the league didn't really, I guess, I, I guess it's kind of like the thing that we always talk about, which is like, what are the till the skills that can be taught? You can't teach good feel. You can't teach athleticism. You can get better athletically, but you know, there's certainly going to be a ceiling on a lot of guys athletically that are, you know, don't test well before the draft, all that. Whereas shooting, it just kind of feels like everyone's like, ah, he'll learn how to shoot. He'll figure it out. Yeah. It's like, well, if he doesn't, he's yeah. not an NBA player. And that happens a lot too. <laughs> yeah. And like, of course, the flip side of what I'm saying is like Nick Stauskas goes eight and he, he sure. could shoot. And, you know, yeah. you look what happened to him. So no, it's definitely like in the lottery. Yes, it, it's definitely not easy, not easy to identify these guys. I just I find it. I find the hype of the draft interesting in retrospect when there was so much uncertainty about which sure. guys could shoot and which guys couldn't. That's all. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, I mean, and there are certain guys that uh, one guy that was very interesting to me that didn't go in the lottery because we'll, we'll talk about a lot of the lottery guys when we get to the redraft. But the the one guy that was really interesting to me, and he's kind of the perfect parallel to the last resloppables we did in 2013 when we talked about Giannis, is Bruno Caboclo, who went to the Toronto Raptors with the 20th pick, and at the time. People thought it was a reach. The broadcast was like, this is kind of uh, very early to take this guy. Like, I probably would have traded back a few spots. I would have tried to get him in the second round, whatever. Toronto takes this massive swing and is kind of foreshadowing what Masai Ujiri wants to build with his team. The OG Anobi types, the Pascal Siakam, Scotty Barnes, basically what the team is now and what he's always chasing after these long wings that are athletic and he was such a raw prospect that they like barely had any film of him. They were calling him the KD of Brazil at the time, which is very funny. And <laughs> it was essentially the exact opposite of like, when we were talking about upside swings on the last time around, when we were talking about like, how did Oklahoma city not take this upside swing on Giannis, which by the way, I have learned since then that apparently OKC wanted to draft Giannis, but they wanted him to stay overseas for one more season, and he didn't want to do that. I have I have since learned that, which is another just absolute killer if you're an OKC fan, especially because you lose Durant a few years later. But that's besides the point. Bruno Caboclo oh, is the I other... Ho I hope that isn't true. I, I hope I it isn't hope true, that's too. that's just them... I hope that's them years later being like, oh yeah, sure. we knew Giannis was good, but it was just yeah. this other reason. But that that is if that was it, that's it really fits bad. the mold. It fits the mold really of the bad. Presti guy at the time of the thing that we talked about on the last time. But Bruno Caboclo ends up going 20th in this draft, and it's the complete opposite of 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 what happens with Giannis. He's not in the league anymore, bounces around, he played in summer league this year, like he's played in European leagues, the G League. And so I guess my whole point on this is that it's like even a team that's great at drafting like the Toronto Raptors, who had a very bad draft, very rare bad draft from the Toronto Raptors here, even a team like that that can identify talent, that takes the risks at the end of the first round that like they did with Pascal Siakam. Like, OG Ananobi was a bit more mm -hmm. of a sure thing, but Pascal Siakam is like a good example of like, that's kind of a risk. Like, even taking Scotty Barnes where they did was seen as a risk at the time last year in the draft, even though people were higher on him and he had his fans, like it just goes to show you that like the upside swing has the other side of the coin as well, which is 
you know, the complete opposite where they just never become an NBA player. And that probably happens way more often than them becoming a legit NBA player. Well, and I think, um, obviously, like, the degree to which Giannis has hit and the degree to which Bruno has not are, you know, polarized. But I think if you wanted to draw a through line between Giannis and Siakam and certainly Barnes, OG to a lesser extent, though he had some of it at Indiana, it's that they, the athleticism certainly was all there, but they could all handle. They were all like actual point forwards. And when we get to another jumbo forward who could legitimately handle, you know, there's a couple of them in this draft, but one of them went at the end of the first round, despite being unathletic in Kyle Anderson. And yeah. you see what's happened there. Like if you, if you're that big and you can, you have athletic chops and you can legitimately handle the ball and sort of like play make and an offense can be entrusted in your hands, at least at a lower level, then I think the upside swing or the dart or the dice or whatever, I think that's much more in your favor because now you sort of, you're never going to be lost on the floor. It just is sort of, Yes, you're going to need to be able to shoot, especially if you're playing with other talent. But the ability to get where you want to go on the floor at that size and understand your options, it just suggests that you have the sort of um, feel that is going to certainly play up on offense and probably defense too. Because if if you have that amount of feel and you're already that size and you're already athletic, it's kind of hard to be a bad defender. So it's just another... um, it's another contrast with a guy like Parker who didn't have the playmaking feel as an offensive player. He was more of a ball stopper. And that translated on defense where as sort of a subpar wing athlete or a just okay wing athlete, he was a negative on one side of the floor. Yeah. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, Before we get into our redraft here, I do just want to say that, we, we got to talk about a few things. So the obvious one, the elephant in the room of this whole podcast is how did Jokic fall? Because Jokic going with the 41st pick during a Taco Bell commercial, hilariously, he, one of the weirder things when watching this broadcast was that like, they were showing pretty much every pick up until Jokic. And then they just yeah. didn't even talk about Jokic at all. Like, like the Denver Nuggets absolutely crushed this draft. Obviously, they get Gary Harris, who the broadcast called the steal of the draft at the time. They they flipped Doug right. McDermott into Nurkic and and Gary Harris, who were both good rotation players for them for years. They flipped Nurkic later for Will Barton, who was a good rotation player for them, and then they get a two time MVP with the forty first pick. The obvious thing here is the look of Jokic was turning teams off. It was like, ah, he doesn't look like an NBA player, the athleticism, all of that kind of stuff. The other thing was he was still very young and he almost pulled himself from this draft until the Denver Nuggets made him a promise at 41 and said, if you're there at 41, we will take you and you will definitely get drafted. And he ends up not pulling himself from this draft. If he does... And he goes on to win MVP of his league the next year, which is what he did. He really popped off at that age. He's probably a top three to five pick in the next draft. Who knows? Maybe people would still have skepticism because of all the things we've worried about with Jokic 
you know, coming into the league and all that stuff. But it really, it, this, him falling this far is obviously very easy for us to sit here and say, but like easily the greatest second round pick of all time, multiple MVPs will go down as one of the greatest basketball players of all time. He's taken 41st. And it is just, I know this happens, but like to this extent, it feels pretty shocking. Oh, I mean, it's incredible it's insane. Like I, I'm, I feel like I'm being kind of unforgiving towards these teams in retrospect, <laughs> but Jokic, I can't like, it's so hard to see someone like that. Like if you wanted to make an argument, you would say the feel was, was there because that was in his game, but even uh, his team, uh, which was mega B max, mega Baymax. They've I'm changed their name like a hundred times. Yeah. I think they, but he was in mega the basket at one point. Yeah, so they didn't um he averaged in I think 25 minutes. I think he averaged like 2 to 2 and a half assists a game. Yeah. Which is obviously like it's like they didn't know how far to lean into his skill set either because yeah. he was so young and they were a pro team trying to win. He's just such a such a historic and unique combination of skills that it's almost like you don't know it when you see it. And he would, he's been the first to tell people that, like, I drank a two liter bottle of soda, like, after every meal or with every meal, like, in these days. So, and, and like, you can look at that and say, oh my God, get him with a weight and conditioning guy. We might really have something on our hands. Or you can say, like, this guy's going to drink a bottle of soda with every meal. <laughs> like, it's, it's just yeah. like, he'll fit in it's, in America. It's, yeah. <laughs> there are certain, there's certainly players who were taken before him whose ceilings were so low that it didn't make a ton of sense to like, you should, you might as well take the Jokic swing over some guys like that. You know, Shabazz Napier ironically is one of them, though the Heat thought hilariously that that was the difference between LeBron staying or going. Um, but it's just, it's the sort of thing where if Jokic is only... 75% as good as he is, then he's still in the league, but he's probably on his second team. And he's probably, um, like, there's probably a discussion of, is he really a starting playoff level center? Which sure. is something that he already had to fight, you know, before winning multiple time MVPs. It's just, yeah. it's such a hard archetype to replicate. And you see that now with Alperin Shengun, someone for... Yeah who was MVP of his league and got a lot of that hype um, because of a guy like Jokic. Jokic's success paved the way for that team in Turkey to lean all the way into what Shengun did well. But Shengun's a little bit smaller. He's 6'9", and there are questions as to whether or not he can really hang and whether or not he's someone you want um, investing a lot of both money and time into developing. So it's it's just... It's so cool that Jokic worked out and that he's in the league who he, you know, and has become the star that he is because it's another just completely, um, I don't know. It's just a, a player and a player type that like we will never really see again to his extent. It's yeah, going to be a long time crazy. before we see something like that. So I mean, the, yeah. the combination of being one of the greatest passers of all time <laughs> also having insane touch to the point where like he's absolutely unstoppable in in floater range 
He can handle the ball as a big, like his talent level offensively. He's arguably the best offensive player in the NBA. If not, I mean, at worst, he's like the second or third. And like you said, it's easy to see why he didn't go because of the red flags. Like you said, he's drinking soda every day. The big thing that people were worried about with him was, will he be able to stay in shape? Well, like, and, and like, honestly, until a few years into his career, I think that people still had concerns about his conditioning and all of that. And then he shattered all of that when he started playing. He played in that quadruple overtime game in uh, the Blazers series a few years ago. Like he's clear, like he's played like 50 minute games. He's, He's a, a bit of a workhorse in terms of he doesn't miss a lot of games. He plays a ton of minutes. He's obviously shattered that, blown all of that out of the water. But it, I, I understand this one. To me, this one, and it, we can compare it to the Giannis pick in the last draft, this makes a ton more sense that he fell. Maybe not to this extent when you're getting yes, to, like, the yeah. 41st pick. But Giannis going 15 is more surprising to me because of everything we talked about on that episode. Because at the time, everyone saw him as this massive upside swing that had talent and like could, if he could ever put it all together, was going to be a very good player. That was the more surprising thing. And once again, maybe they didn't know that the league was going in the direction that it was going in at the time. You know, like you said, like the wings, this was a wing heavy draft. This is where they kind of started to figure that whole thing out. Giannis was the year before that. And it was a very weird draft in itself, but let's get into the redraft because I do just, let me just hit on a few things here. First off, some of my favorite quotes that I didn't get to, um, Aaron Gordon oh, yeah. be, being the next Kawhi was uh, was an interesting one. Love that comp. Um, and that was Kawhi. Fresh Sean Marion, of, too. Sean Marion and, and Kawhi were the two. Jalen yeah. Rose said Sean Marion and Bill said Kawhi. Um, obviously, I just said Gary Harris, steal of the draft. Bill Simmons actually called Joel Embiid and Darius Arich before the draft. I watched another thing with him and Jalen Rose. He called that to a T that those that that happened. Um, and then oh, you mean for Philly? For Philly, yeah. He he said he was like, look, Sam Hinkie wants to be bad next year again. He wants to get another chance at a a top guy in the 2015 draft. Like he's going to take the guy that's going to stay overseas in Sarge, and he's going to take the guy in Embiid who can't play this year. So that was a a great call by him. Um, so yeah, everyone seemed to be in love with Alfred Payton on this. Zach Levine was the real upside swing guy. Another upside swing guy that was on here. He was even getting Jay Billis compared him to Russell Westbrook, which was funny. But, um, so there were, there were a few guys that you at least saw what they could become as players, even though it took Zach Levine a very long time to get to where he was. And then just the last thing here, um, I had. Bill loving Spencer Dinwiddie was really funny to me. He just like loved his energy and like he he had he he had a few misses in this draft. He loved Clee Anthony early too and kept talking about how teams were going to regret passing on Clee Anthony early, which obviously did not happen. But I just love once again goes back to like the whole like how you can literally just scout based on vibes of guys. He literally was just like, I like him. He's a leader. He's an alpha. He's got a great attitude. And that's what you need for a point guard. And he turns out to be a really good NBA player, even though obviously there are, are many other factors other than that, that that lead to his success in the NBA. But I, I just thought those were some funny things from the broadcast and, and the way that people were talking about yeah. it at the time. So I've got a couple other to add, a couple okay. others to add. 
one um, plays into what we were talking about with Wiggins about, and like Billis was about as critical of a player as Billis is ever going to be with Wiggins saying, you know, it's about his mindset. Like he does have a lot of skills, but there's legit questions about his mindset. So they interview his dad right after he goes number one. And the reporter's like, yeah, Mitchell Wiggins. And they're like, so Mitchell, you just, turned to me and asked, did the Cavs make the right pick? Like he asked that to the reporter about his son right before he was interviewed. So you're like, I mean, I don't know if I really can like put that on Andrew Wiggins, but just an interesting, you know, where's the family coming from sort of thing. And on Exum. So yes, Chad Ford compares Exum to Kobe. And I think there was a little bit of a split opinion on that broadcast team as to how good Exum was and, and where to take him. I don't but think that the broadcast really liked him, to be honest. That's a, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. they, they were going to say all the nice things about him, but there was mm-hmm. definitely skepticism there. Exum um, had had a really good, like I mentioned, really good hoop summit, like a full year before. And then he basically doesn't play for the whole incoming year. Same and chart, one of the reasons... Right. And so one of the reasons that Ford is so in on him and he wasn't on the broadcast, but like a big push for Exum was he went to the draft combine and he tested out athletically like, well, not great, but like, well, and then it was like, but in interviews, this guy is just, he's a, he's a killer. He just wants to rip your heart out. He's such a leader. Psychologically, man, he is off the charts. And vibes. it's like, okay. I mean, okay, that's right. Great vibes. XM's a good kid. He's still playing professionally overseas. Like, I obviously wish the, the, the best for him. But if a big part of your pitch, he, by the way, couldn't shoot and yeah. couldn't shoot. But a, a, if a big part of your pitch is you're a psychological killer, and you're an alpha, and you don't play despite being healthy for the whole year before the draft, maybe maybe something doesn't add up there. Yeah. And when they interviewed when they interviewed him, again, nice kid, not his fault, but they interview him after he goes five, I think, to um to Utah. And he's like. Yeah, when I saw my name rising up rankings, I thought it was a mistake. Like, just a really, like, again, an earnest guy, like, just a good kid, not his fault. He was 18 years old at this point. I I don't blame him for this. But again, it's like, oh, my God, guys, can we stop? Can we stop trying so hard to base so much of our evaluations off of, like, vibes or interviews or whatever? Can right. Please look at how well they play basketball. Like, please, yeah. please. Yeah. Just a I mean, look, bit. all of it is a factor, but you have to take the film and, and how they look in actual games into consideration more so than yes. like, do they want it? Do they really want it enough? Like, I don't know. Andrew Wiggins was just a key factor on a championship team. Took some time to figure himself out. And as you said, it's a it's an important Wait. context, but like he's not look, he's not alpha mindset, but he's still a good a good player. 
I, I could do another half hour on Wiggins, man. I think he's so we'll, we'll, interesting. We'll, we'll talk about him because so he, he is. We will. We will. He is one of the more interesting players in that the public perception has shifted on him so many times in such a short amount, not even a decade. We've talked about Andrew Wiggins in so many different ways. But the last kind of weird broadcast thing that happened here, uh, Michael Carter Williams, when they interviewed him, I don't know if you caught that one, but they were like, yeah, 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 I did. Hey, uh, the Sixers, this is when we thought that the Sixers were going to keep Alfred Payton. They trade him to the Orlando Magic, who had spent like seven hours talking to him. So the Sixers obviously heard about that, and they were like, all right, we're going to draft him. And they'd be like, you want him? You give us... Sarich and and they got they actually got their own 2015 first round pick back, which turned out to be Jaleel Okafor, so not that great. But they had traded it in the in the Dwight Howard Andrew Bynum trade originally, which is a fun fact for Sixers fans. But in that interview, they go to Michael Carter Williams. So, uh, are you going to be traded? <laughs> and he's like, he's like, I don't know. Like, I think, I think I can play with Peyton. Like, I think it will be fine. And, you know, I know Sam and coach, they all have a plan and, you know, it will work out the best for me. And blah, blah. I'm like, this is pretty brutal just to be like, Hey, to like some 21 year old kid, like, so you getting shipped, you getting moved tonight. <laughs> they were the the broadcast was high off the slop, is what I'm trying to say, folks. They 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 were. It was wanting, so sloppy, man. It was when, very when they very sloppy. Do, when they weren't doing that, and they had like ten correspondents, like in various places interviewing various people. When when it wasn't stuff like that, it was um, they had the obligatory like you know, tragedy porn exploitation thing. I think it was Adrian Payne was the one yes. who got, got that treatment. And uh, when they weren't doing that at the top of the draft, they were emphasizing um, how little they knew. These were our reporters superficially. They are reporters and they're like, oh, who, who can say they, they cut to Ramona Shelburne, <laughs> who is obviously the Lakers correspondent as she, of course as she is. And they were like, so Ramona, like, what do you hear out of, out of Lakerland? Her first line, I think she's reading off of a teleprompter. Yeah, yeah. But her first line is, yesterday, Joel Embiid tweeted, I'm a Laker. Does he know something we don't? And it's just like, in a way, it's ahead of its time. Because that yeah. is much more like the discourse where we got now from, sure. from most national outlets. So, yeah. you know. Just, you just gotta gotta roll with it, man. Gotta yeah. embrace it, the slop. Gotta get is, sloppy. Is Joel Embiid gonna fall to the seventh pick? Yeah, I mean that's. I, I don't think the best player in the draft. Every everyone agreed that he was the best prospect. Like on the broadcast, everyone agreed. Like it was there wasn't even a question. The only reason you're not taking him with the first pick is because of the injuries. I don't think he's gonna fall all the way to seven. But Ch Chad uh, Ford said his range was one to ten. That's what he. Said. I know he did on that pre-draft podcast and and. Bill, to his credit, said, I don't see him falling below the Celtics at six. I would be shocked. And I would I would think that he's going to go three to Philly. Like, that was – he called a shot. He he landed that one. But but now we get into the redraft part of the podcast, which is the most fun part of the podcast, folks, especially in a draft like this that, as we've said, is absolutely loaded with talent from the lottery to the end of the first round to the beginning of the second round. So I am a biased person in this. So I'm going to give you the honor of making the first overall selection 
in the 2014 resloppables redraft. So with the number one pick, who are we going with? Are we going with Jokic or Embiid here? We are going with uh it's, I, it's very hard to say this. We are going with Joel Embiid. Whoa! He's the number one pick. Okay. okay. I did not expect this, Chuck. I expected you to pick Jokic, actually. So I, I'm I'm very interested to hear this. All right. Well, you may not believe in him, but I do. No, here's, <laughs> no, here's you know the me. Deal. Here's the deal. Um, both these guys are Hall of Famers. Okay. So you're not really going wrong either way. And it's true that Jokic is never going to get hurt. No, I mean, he doesn't project to because he plays so under control all of sure. the time. And um, the the real questions, to the extent that there are any, about Jokic has to do, um, I guess, with his playoff bona fides. But he's really good in the playoffs. Like, pretty consistently, yeah. he has been awesome in the playoffs. And all, his most undeniable trait, which is being an offensive gravitational force is right there. Every single playoff series, no one has really found out a way to guard him except for like bubble Anthony Davis and Dwight Howard kind of like roughing him up. And that was when, you know, Jokic was like 24 and most people, you know, who are going to be finals MVPs and do all that don't do it until they're like 28, 29. So it was very much sort of like a growing pains thing for him. Um, so it's not like I really don't want to pretend that uh, I'm down on Jokic in any capacity. I just think about what are the what does the team look like where you're good enough to win the title with this guy as the best player. And for what it's worth, I think the Nuggets are, like, very close right now. I, in yeah. fact, I picked them to win the title before this past season on my podcast. So did I. There you go. Like, he is a Hall of Famer. It's just yeah. you need to find very, very, very athletic wings to play with him. Like, that's the challenge with Jokic. Because you need really good um, perimeter defenders to keep guys out of the paint. Because that's when Jokic is vulnerable is when guys are driving at him. And you need guys who can rotate weak side and actually eliminate and contest shots. Because though Jokic is very clever and he gets his deflections here and there, he's not deterring a whole lot sort of at the rim. And those players are just really, really, really hard to find. They're just brutally difficult to find. With Embiid, the you need to find a really good playmaking offensive player to play with him. And the Sixers have James Harden now, but Embiid, though he has grown as a passer, is still like kind of a ball-stopping guy. Sure. Like in his heart of hearts, he's scoring is where he excels his own individual scoring. Honestly, as, as a prospect, add. he was projected to be a much better player, uh, uh, playmaker and passer than he's become. Yeah, well, and, like, the reads are easier in college. He has Wiggins to pass to, like, out of doubles and stuff. Like, he's always had the feel, but yeah, you can't you can't build an offense around him touching the ball so, so much. You do need, like, an NBA playmaker 
a really good one, an all-star level one. Um, but the NBA is full of those kinds of players, in my opinion. Like, you can look at how bad the market is for Colin Sexton right now, who still doesn't have a contract. And he isn't, like, a great NBA playmaker. He's not wing-sized. Like, I get it. But that guy should have a deal by this point in the offseason. There should be some team that's willing to make room for a guy with his amount of talent. And so if you just go sort of up the scale, there's tons of players that if you pair them with Embiid, you're like, this is a championship duo. This makes sense. And when you look at Embiid's career, the guys that he has played with, I just like, this is another Simmons gimmick about like play his career out 10 times and give him all these different sets of teammates. And how does it look like Simmons is such, he requires so much accommodation. Ben Simmons did. And Embiid did do that, but no one has really made it that much easier on Embiid since he's been in a Sixers uniform. And I just think that if you if you put him with all-star playmaker X, which there are legitimately like 20 to 25 guys in the league who kind of fit that description, that his two-way value as a defensive player and as an unstoppable offensive one really give you at least on paper the like the edge in tons of playoff series and he's had a broken face and he's had a torn knee and he's you know he's had all this stuff to nag him and if the injuries want to push him down for you i i of course understand that i just think that he is the slightly better two-way overall talent that's all i and I see him working. I, I find it easier to build a title team around him. And I just think he's been sort of extraordinarily and unfortunately snake bit. That's all. Yeah. And 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 look, it, it it's a hard conversation to have because since Jokic has made his leap to MVP level player, we haven't really seen him in the playoffs like that because – Jamal Murray gets hurt. Michael Porter Jr. is never available. Like, can they create such a high-level offense that the defensive issues that you have, the concerns you have with Jokic might dissipate a little bit? I think there is an argument to a certain extent for sure. I don't think Michael Porter Jr. is a particularly good fit on that team, even when healthy, because of the issues that he has defensively. I think that Jokic having bubble Jamal Murray... Uh, you know, Jokic was amazing. I'm not taking anything away from him. He was absolutely unbelievable. Was the best player in a series with Kawhi Leonard, Paul George. Like, he was amazing. I'm not not mm -hmm. uh, like, taking anything away from him. Watching Jamal Murray in that playoffs, I was like, if Embiid, you just gave Embiid a, a teammate like this, I feel as though it would... Exactly. It, it would ease a lot of the burdens that he has had in the playoffs. And the one time that he had Jimmy Butler... Which would be which would be the time that I feel like the Sixers had the best shot at winning the title. They run into the Toronto Raptors, who I think people still forget how good that team actually was from one to eight. They were absolutely loaded. And they had Kawhi Leonard playing some of the greatest basketball I've ever seen in my life and was just honestly better. Defensively, Embiid was an absolute beast in that series. Offensively, he struggled in the playoffs sometimes. I think defensively, he's been more consistent. Um, outside of a handful of games and when he wasn't particularly healthy in the Miami series. Um, 
I think that he, I think that some of the criticisms of him in the playoffs are 100% valid. This upcoming year is going to define a lot for me because obviously with the second pitch, I'm going to take Nikola Jokic, who even as a Sixers fan, this argument is hard to me because I obviously love Joel Embiid, but everything that you talked about, while I feel as though he hasn't had the best circumstances for him, at the end of the day, your legacy is created on how many conference finals you get to, how many finals you get to, how many finals you win, like it or not. Whether it's stupid, whether it's, you know, how would this guy's career have played out if he played with this guy instead of that guy? And, you know, maybe if he doesn't get injured, blah, blah, blah. There's all these what ifs we could do. And Embiid is 100% undeniably an amazing talent. But the argument for the injuries is a valid one because if Jokic gets more bites at the apple to win a title and ends up winning a title and also has multiple MVPs where Joel Embiid was the runner up for those MVPs and Joel never wins uh, an MVP at any point in his career. Then I think the, the history books will look much more positively on Nikola Jokic. I will be interested to see, and it's something that I brought up on your podcast when I went on, because I like the way that the Denver Nuggets have built around Jokic in this variation. They, they brought in Bruce Brown, Contavious Caldwell Pope. They took mm -hmm, some cracks mm -hmm. on some defensive guys in the in the draft, even though I didn't love those prospects. I, I like the idea that was behind it. So I'm very interested to see if Jokic, being this singular, amazing, generational, one of the greatest offensive talents we've ever seen, could go down as, like, undeniably, like, he might go down as the best passer in NBA history. Like, he is that good of a passer. Like, he's mm -hmm. an incredible passer. And, and also... By the way, shooting shooting wise, scoring wise, like he he's an unbelievable, amazing offensive engine. My question is, can you put all defenders around him and with just leave Jamal Murray? Let's just leave Michael Porter Jr. out of this because I I don't even know if that guy's ever going to be available to play, which might be another thing that that hurts Jokic's chances. If if one of a max player is not playing at any point in this contract, that's also an issue. But that's not really a Jokic. He, thing. He, yeah. But like, oh, can yeah, you can it. Jokic play and be? Can you put a team of athletic defenders, the KCPs, the Aaron Gordons, the types that they have now, the Bruce Browns, and is Jokic such a great offensive talent that he can lift up all of the guys around him? And it might not matter as much about his defensive deficiencies when he can lift up so much and take subpar offensive players and make them into good ones. Uh, like, I'm not going to say it's impossible. I would never, like, because he's been so good offensively in the playoffs. It's certainly, again, when you have a singular archetype like this that's just basically irreplicable, then you're already in uncharted waters. So, I like, I don't know. What I do know is that it is very, very rare to find a player so tilted to one side of the ball. And I know like we can have a separate debate about Jokic's defense. I know he isn't like terrible. He's not bad, but it's better he, than, I don't than the reputation, but yeah. But I also think that certain groups overrate him because of these like regular season advanced metrics that focus on how he doesn't screw up rather than how he like deters shots, which is really the sure. point of being a center is to deter shots. But um, 
when he is so tilted on offense, you just look at the players who win finals MVP, you know, the ones who get through and actually do it. And there's like the tilt is not that extreme, you know, it's Kevin Durant, it's LeBron, it's Giannis. Um, now I'm blanking on like who literally, oh, so well, Steph, Steph is Steph the exception. One. Right? Yeah, I was going to say, is is Jokic that Steph level exception is the question. I think he, I mean, I think he is good enough offensively to be, but he plays a more crucial defensive position than yes. Steph plays. Steph also that. can survive on defense and be sort of an a solid defender at his position and not burn his team. And he also plays with a historically good defensive player. I mean, Draymond is a historically good defensive player. So that's what I'm saying. If Draymond played with Jokic, I, I, yeah, they'd win a bunch of titles. It'd be great. But it's it's hard to find those guys to play with him. And that's why I ultimately give Embiid the slight edge. That's all. Yeah, he, and he, I just, mean, he, he cuts that mold of sort of a finals MVP a bit more smoothly for me. If you look at the last handful of things, and I think one thing that I might have even done as a podcaster, as someone who talks about the league all the time, is underrated how important defense is in the playoffs. Because let's look at the last few champions who <laughs> have won the title. The Golden State Warriors had the number one playoff defense. They also had, I believe, the second best, or they were tied for first best defense in the regular season. The Bucks had one yeah. of the best and, defenses. And when Draymond the was healthy, they were, they were when Draymond was healthy, they amazing. were amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Giannis and Brooke Lopez, that Bucks defense was incredible. The Raptors defense was amazing the year before that, or the Lakers defense the year before that was amazing. The Raptors defense the year before that was amazing. All of those Warriors teams that won those titles had great defenses. I think the last one that didn't have a great defense that won the title was that Cavs year. And I even think that their defensive playoff rating was really good. I think it was just the regular season where they weren't that great. And generally speaking, these teams that get to the finals have incredible defenses. And you've seen Jokic, like the Sun series, and once again, he carried that whole team through the first round against the Blazers. And it was an amazing accomplishment that they even got to the second round, considering no Michael Porter Jr., no Jamal Murray. Jokic was doing everything himself. But you saw in that series them absolutely go after him and kill him in the mid-range, at the rim. Like, they they picked him apart, really, that series. And maybe that's one matchup that's just not very preferable, but, like, you're in a conference with Luka Doncic. You're going to have to face the Golden State Warriors. Like, there are teams that are going to be able to exploit that, and I wonder if because maybe, maybe Jokic's high-end offensive talent is just good enough to win a title and do that, and he's already won multiple MVPs doing it, and he's won them playoff series doing it, maybe even more so than Embiid. But is... Is the are the flaws on the defensive end that much of an issue? Like you said, when you get deeper into the playoffs, and like does Embiid just have less weaknesses, and maybe he be is he a little bit easier to build around because of the two way ability? And it's totally possible. I think this upcoming season is going to be a very interesting test for Embiid, assuming that the roster is the way that it is. I think that they've built pretty well around him. I would say this is their best team that they've built around him since the 18-19 season, which was, once again, a very top-heavy team that had a great defense and offensively struggled. Embiid was not quite the offensive player that he was. I don't think that Jimmy Butler was even the offensive player that he's become in Miami. So I think that all things considered, 
it's uh, to me it's a toss up like you could go Jokic you could go Embiid as a as a fan of the Sixers I would probably I would lean towards Embiid just because he's my guy but at the same time I I try to look at these things objectively and I I don't think that you could be wrong really going in either direction to be honest but after this is where it really starts to get interesting because we know the first two picks are going to be the, the guy who just won back-to-back MVPs and the guy who was the runner-up for those MVPs, certainly. So you have the third pick. I gave you the first pick, so you'll go with the third pick here. Who are you going to take with the third pick? Because this is interesting to me. There's a handful of guys you could you could include here. Who are you going to pick? Uh, man, very difficult. Uh, I went with Zach Levine. He was my pick. I thought you were going to go with Marcus Smart, to be honest. I did too. (laughs) (laughs) I thought about Marcus a lot. At the end of the day, like, so Marcus, in contrast to Embiid and to Jokic, and like, let's be clear about what a big drop off this is from these first two, who are probably two of like the 15 or 20 best players ever um already so you take the drop off from those two um and bead we talked about how the team fits have been clunky how injury wise personally he's had some issues how he's been snake bit a little bit um in the playoffs marcus as good as he is um i mean he's gotten to play off of two legit all-star wings more or less his whole career and his player type, which is this incredibly versatile defender who uh, can run some offense for you, but like plays so hard and will accept any defensive assignment, certainly very valuable. And I think it is valuable to winning teams. Like Boston was a, a juggernaut last year and he was a big part of that, but you can't ask for a better situation to play in in the nba just looking at every other roster the only one that's comparable is you know the clippers if Kawhi and paul george are healthy in terms of like fits for marcus smart and as you saw in the finals when you run into a good enough offensive player marcus's defense you know it 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 has its limits as to how valuable it really is to a winning team that's the great offense beats great defense line and not again they got through this series and they won it but i thought drew holiday pretty clearly outplayed him straight up when they played the bucks in that series as well marcus is always going to be this inconsistent shooter there's he's going to have a little bit of questions as to how many shots is he taking and are those the right shots and you always forgive him because of how good he is defensively but in levine Like, he is just, he is a true all-star offensive talent. And I don't want to overthink it with him. To the point about pairing, like, all-star level player with Embiid, Levine isn't the smoothest fit because he's not a great playmaker. But if you imagine, you imagine putting Marcus Smart next to Embiid and you still need a lot of offensive juice. You put Levine next to Embiid, and I was, and I'm like, is that a one seed? Because Levine, and let's get away from Embiid and give Levine his flowers. Uh, one of the very best finishers, you know, perimeter in at the league. You know, I know he's had a little bit of 
nick up kind of injuries with his knee, but truly like unstoppable around the rim, massive athlete, and is a great, great, great shooter now. You know, the only um, true knock on his game from a sort of a playoff viability standpoint is his defense because his off-ball defense is still pretty rough um, and didn't really take a step up in Chicago. And I get that, but I also think that if you look at the bigs he's played with, which has been Carl Anthony Towns first and now Nikola Vucevic second, you know, like it's not as though he's been put in a defensively strong environment either. Sure. So I I think that there are ways to kind of get away with it with him um, in a system that is strong enough defensively. And that's why, and I think that that offense can still play really deep into the playoffs and be really effective and really, really good. So that he would be my number three. Okay, yeah, I, I think that's, I mean... <laughs> You brought up like I mean, we we obviously know Zach Levine is a freak athlete. That's always been the thing about him. The finishing around the rim, she shoots like what like sixty five to seventy percent. Like he's insane at finishing around the rim. Shooting wise, one of the most underrated shooters in the NBA for sure. He can shoot in a variety of ways. Very dynamic shooter. Very good pull up shooter. Extremely good coming off screens. He can shoot off movement like. Probably one of the, I would say probably the most underrated, like he's, when you consider everything, percentages, difficulty of shot, how he can shoot on the ball, off the ball, you could make the argument he's like a top five shooter in the NBA. Like he's that good. And with his size, athleticism, shooting, all of that together, he's an incredible offensive player. I do worry about the defense a little bit, but I, I think that I would have I would have been split between Smart and Levine here. So I'm glad that you made the hard choice for me. So I'll go with the fourth pick. I'll go with Marcus Smart. Kind of echoing everything you said. I do think that context-wise, he's in a very good situation for himself. Defensively, just one defensive player of the year. Incredible, incredible defender. Can really guard such a wide variety of players. Like, I mean, one game you'll see him on... Steph, and then the next game you'll see him on Giannis. Like, he can really guard an incredible range on the ball. He might be the best on-ball defender in the NBA. Certainly one of the best. Um, and is very important to the Celtics' success. And I do agree with your point about playing off Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. Two all-star wings. Fantastic situation. He also was an important part of that team before the, those guys were really factors there that did get to the Eastern Conference Finals. So I think that he's been contributing to winning at least on mm -hmm. some level throughout his almost his entire career. I think he is just a winner, to be honest. I know that's kind of an overplayed thing, and I don't really like to say that, but I think that everywhere he's he's went, it, winning basketball has followed, and, and he's certainly a big part of that in Boston. And I think that... I would probably slightly lean towards Levine because of the things that you said. I will take Smart gladly at four. I think that he's easily the fourth best player in this draft, if not third. And uh, we'll continue to just have like an amazing career for the Celtics for the next few years. So now we have the fifth pick, which is your pick. I think I know who you're going to pick here, but we'll see. Because you've been throwing me off. I, have no, makes, I had no idea yeah, that, that Embiid or Levine, that's shocking to me. <laughs> I know that makes one of us who knows who I'm going to pick. Um, <laughs> okay. I don't like, I, I still can't, I can't shake it. I still like, I don't like 
this, but I'm taking Wiggins, taking him fifth. So I think I think I know the other guy that you were contemplating here, but why Wiggins? Why Wiggins at five? It it has to like he requires a lot of accommodation. That's clearly true. Um, but if you if you zoom out a little bit and you see what Minnesota what that what that culture was like, what that organization was like when he was there, it never really had its had itself together and everyone sort of pulling in the same direction. So Wiggins isn't going to be a catalyst for any of that, but maybe, you know, Golden State is as good an organization as a guy like Wiggins can can go to because they don't need their wings to produce offense. They have the offense. They need their wings to sort of fill gaps. And Wiggins can really do that. But maybe he does translate to like more context. Maybe if he were in Denver with Jokic, he would be really, really good. Or if he were in Philadelphia with Embiid and, you know, and I guess Harden, he'd be really, really good. I just, he's just sort of that, um, what I call on my podcast, 30 team starters, just a player that literally every roster you have to make room to start him and play him because what he does is that important. Um, and you saw how his defense held up in every single series in, in the playoffs, including against Jason Tatum. And Tatum was a little banged up. I think that helped him. But when when you're that good, that deep, you just – I there's only so far I can drop you in a given draft and, like, I don't want to be holding Andrew Wiggins's, you know, 19 through 24 year old seasons on those baby wolves against him his whole career. So I'm ready to lean in. Yeah. If he's your fourth best offensive player, then you're really good. Like that's a really good team. If he's your third best, you're still probably very, very, very good. So there aren't many, there still haven't been many wing athletes like him that have come into the NBA since this draft. That's how well his athleticism has held up. So yeah, I got him five. All right. I, I, it is hard to argue against a guy who was, I think Draymond is more central to the Warriors and what they do because of his defense. But I think from a two-way perspective, he was very clearly the second best player on the Warriors this year. I think his offense and his defense was was extremely good in the playoffs and in in also essential for, you know, like you said, guarding Jason Tatum, which did a hell of a job, regardless of 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 Tatum's health situation, made him look significantly worse than Tatum has maybe ever looked in the playoffs because he's always been a, a big player performer. So okay. So this is where it gets tricky for me because I think those are pretty clearly the top five guys. You could go a number of oh, different you directions. I think they are. I mean, I think I I'm I might go a little bit off the beaten path here. I don't even think it is, to be honest. I'm gonna take Clint Capella at six. Um Ooh. I think I think that Clint Capella being okay, so the archetype of player that Clint Capella is is thought of to be easy to find, right? Like it's like, oh well, mm-hmm. you know, you get a guy who who sets screens and catches lobs and Defends the rim. Well, Clint Capella has been in multiple situations, been on conference finals teams. He was incredibly important to those Rockets teams with Chris Paul and James Harden. 
Then he goes to Atlanta, has some success there. Now, look, Joel Embiid, the strategy in that series was basically tire out Joel Embiid, but Clint Capella did a hell of a job doing that, I'll tell you that much. I think that you could you could pick a few different guys here, but if you want to talk about from a winning scalability standpoint, I think having a center like Clint Capella that can do the things that you want, like that rim-running, rim-protecting center to do, Clint Capella is going to be about the best that you can find without being Rudy Gobert, basically is what I'm trying to get at here. So I think that that's the reason why if I'm trying to build a winning basketball team, having a guy like Clint Capella that fits into a lot of situations and has been a winner on proven teams and is basically going to be the best version of that archetype that you can get without having one of the greatest defenders of all time in Rudy Gobert, that I do think that his overall value to a large majority of teams, especially the teams that he's been on, is incredibly important when it comes to winning. And who knows, maybe if he got deeper into the playoffs, maybe if he ever got to a finals, he wouldn't be quite as effective. But he's a very, like, you know, he's had a very good career to this point. He went way lower uh, in this draft than than the sixth pick. And uh, yeah, I think he's he's an extremely good high-level role-player center. Yeah, um, he has had an excellent career, of course, and if you know, it's he wasn't taking any of those 27 threes that didn't go in in game seven against <laughs> Golden State. So, if a couple of those fall and they go to the finals and they probably beat a kind of checked out Cavs team, then yeah, I mean, then all is then he's a legend in Houston forever. So, sure. I, I certainly understand it. I I don't know if that's who I would have gone with because now in the NBA, you get so many teams who find a way to go small in the playoffs. Sure. So it's not just worrying about how he matches up against Embiid or Jokic. Although on the Hawks, when they played, you know, Embiid outplayed him, obviously, but Capella's Hawks won that series. But um, it's about, you know, how do you go up against, a, you know, a Warriors team where Draymond's at five or a Bucks team when Giannis is at five, you know, et cetera. Um, but certainly an understandable pick. And to just he how faced, understandable it is. Face both of those teams in the playoffs, and I actually think did a pretty good job, all things considered. Like with the Draymond and the Warriors and uh, the Bucks with, with Giannis. I, it is, it's certainly a concern. I'm not saying that it is, especially because those two are probably the best at doing that. But I think that he he held his own in, in those series. Yeah. I think he, yes. I don't think he's ever been like truly embarrassed or played off the floor or yeah. anything like that. Um, I guess the one exception might be that weirdo like Russ Rockets team. That's not his fault, you know. Yeah, that was a um, weird thing. They traded him halfway through the year. It was like, yeah. Yeah. So, um, oh. Gosh. Ay, ay, ay. Okay, I'll go with... Um, yeah, I'm going to go with Jeremy Grant. Your boy. I knew you were going to do that. Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah. I, thought, I honestly thought that you were debating it at the last pick because I know you like Jeremy Grant a lot. I do like Jeremy Grant a lot. Uh, sort of, if you imagine, you know, him on the Pistons as, you know, Wiggins on the Wolves, you sort of, you know, that's sort of what I'm getting at. You just, you get a guy who needs the right context. He's not going to sure. be 
the second best offensive player on a really good team, but he could be the fourth best offensive player on a really good team. Uh, like he was with the Nuggets. And like he was with the Nuggets. And so I just, it, it takes a lot to be able to play starting wing on teams that can hold up deep in the playoffs. And I think with his defensive versatility and his length and his shooting, um, that he is one of those guys. I just, I do. The pitch for him, honestly, is not that much different than the pitch for Wiggins. If anything, I actually think Grant is a little bit better of a shooter than Wiggins, but he isn't quite as like strong and explosive of an athlete. So I don't know that he holds up so well in a conference finals or a finals, but a really good player. And I think is officially underrated because he played on an intentionally terrible team in Detroit. So (laughs) I think a very good pickup for, for Portland. We'll see. We'll see if he gets back on a team that can leverage his skill set enough. I have a feeling that before the end of his career, he will, but we'll see. So I I think that's a totally fine pick. That's probably where I would have picked him too. I think that I, I, the only thing that I struggle with, with Jeremy Grant is, does he want to be that guy? Because buying into your role is also a big part of this. And we'll see in Portland, whether he's the second, third, whatever offensive option with Simons and Dame there. Uh, And we'll see how that works. I think defensively, he's very good. And I think that uh, having valuable two-way long uh, athletic wings in the modern NBA is extremely important. And I think that he can fit that archetype. And the only question to me is, like, does he want to? Because he wanted to be the guy in Detroit regardless of, like, that team sucked. But, like, part of the appeal of him yeah. going there was, like, he might make an all-star team. Like, may, it, what are his priorities? If his priorities are back to kind of where he was in Denver, maybe even somewhere in between that, then I think that he's going to be extremely valuable to to Portland and what they want to build there in this in this new era of the game, the, I guess. No, I was going to say another little contrast between him and Wiggins is Wiggins has already gotten, like he got all that out of his system when he was young. Yeah. And then he got this massive contract. That it's the I reverse. Grant wants. <laughs> yeah. And so he can, so Wiggins can very easily now slide into a winning situation and reduce his role. With Grant, it might take a little longer. And I think teams are wary about, you know, being the team that pays him so much money. But at the end of the day, I think that stuff is a little bit overstated. The cap's going to rise. Some team's going to really want him. I'm surprised there wasn't more of a market for him. We we sort of talked out the D'Anthony Melton versus Jeremy Grant hypo for the Sixers. Right. I would love the Sixers if they had him on their team. Yeah. But, you know, we'll, actually, we'll just – we'll see. Someone brought up to me after that podcast when we recorded it was – the benefit of only getting one first round pick to Detroit was that they could get cap space because they were just able to send him into Portland's cap space. And that was an ask. So, mm-hmm. so I understood that after someone explained it to me, I was like, yeah, that makes sense that the, cause then they were able to take on more contracts and get more assets, whatever. But regardless, Jeremy Grant, very good, talented player drafted by the Philadelphia 76ers in the second round of this draft. Don't you forget that? Uh, RIP Sam Hankey. But um, so This is where it gets really hard for me because there's one player that's left on the board that has literally made an all-star team. And I just... An all-NBA team. An all-NBA team. And I just don't know. We could just talk about it now. I don't know what to do with Julius Randle because Julius Randle is a very talented scorer, good player, all things considered. He does not fit on a lot of teams to me at least in the role that he thinks that he is. And outside of that one Mm -hmm. outlier year where he shot 
like crazy from three and hot from the mid-range. He has had uh, mixed years. He's kind of all over the place. I think that at this point, like you're getting to the tier of guy where like, does scalability matter more than just having a guy who's really talented? And like, if you look at the other guys in his range that we're picking from here, like it gets hard to me because I don't know. I, I honestly have no idea what the fuck to do with your, with, uh, with Julius Randall. Uh, <laughs> well, who, so who else catches your eye? Let's, let's go there. Let's see if we can reverse engineer it. Aaron Gordon. Um, mm-hmm. Aaron Gordon, I guess Yusuf Nurkic, but like I'd probably not. Uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich, Spencer Dinwiddie. Mm-hmm. Like there are plenty of talented, mm-hmm. good players that have contributed to good teams on here uh, that I would consider. Uh, like Gordon and, and, and Randall are the really interesting ones to me because two years ago, this probably would have been like, hey, you just pick Randall and whatever. But like Gordon has shown now in Denver that I think that his role on a winning team can like he ha- can have a significant role in a winning team, kind of similar to the roles we've been talking about, where he's a lesser offensive threat, of a good defender, like on that end, and he might be a little bit more scalable because of that, even though the shooting isn't great. Um, so yeah, I guess I'll just pick Julius Randle here. Um, Randle, uh, he's made an all NBA team. I think that the fact that he is. He's a very polarizing player, certainly. I think that the fact that he he's not quite good enough to run an offense through him unless you have that perfect situation where you have all those defenders around him and Tibbs system and that stuff in that one year. But I do still think he's a talented scorer. Like I said, he can playmake. He's become a much better playmaker over the years. Uh, I wish that he maybe wasn't as much of a ball stopper as he is, even though he has passing and playmaking ability. Um, but certainly a good, talented scorer and big, I don't know. I don't love Julius Randle as a player, but uh, all things considered, <laughs> the fact that he has made an all-star team, he's been uh, a, a capable, you know, high-end starter on, on some teams. I, I think that you probably just have to take him at this point. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's, I probably lean Gordon. Yeah. Probably. Just, I mean... It is the sort of thing you were talking about with how important playoff defense really is. And finding Gordon's skill set where he is good enough on offense to stick as a starter, and then you see all the different kind of guys he can guard on the wing. Um, I just I think it is harder to find that than it is to find a sort of volume-based guy like Randall who's really going to rise and fall with his jumper in terms of being a positive NBA player. So yeah. I, uh, but I think it's very, very close. So I'll, I'll go with Gordon. We've sort of okay, done so all of that. Randall Gordon. Gordon. Yeah. Okay. So now we yeah. are back to me. So we are at the, are we at the 10th pick right now? Cause we had the top five. We knew who the top yes. five were. Then I took Clint Capella. Okay. So now we're at the 10th pick. Um, okay. I'm looking at the board here, trying to shake things out. See a few guys I like, I mean, guys that I just mentioned, Um, I'll go with Bogdan Bogdanovich. Um, I think that Bogdan, you know, it's unfortunate that he's had some recent injuries as well. He hasn't played a ton in Atlanta really, which sucks because he spends most of his career wasting away in Sacramento. Like so many players do. 
and just never really getting the chance to show that he can play at a higher level. Um, very talented sh uh, scorer, shooter. He's got decent on-ball chops. He can pass a little bit. Like, he, he has that dribble, shoot, pass model of offensive wing that we've talked about before mm -hmm. and kind of what the vision that we saw Atlanta building when they got him. Now, I would have loved to see him on the Bucks personally. I would have loved to see how he fit in with that team, which is what originally what was going to happen. Now, we might not see him ever quite get back to where he was his last two years in Sacramento and his first two years in Atlanta because of the knee injury. But I still think that like he is a guy that I want to have on my team in the playoffs, I think that he proved in that that one year in Atlanta, even in the Sixer series, he was absolutely gashing us at times. I think that he's a capable enough offensive player, and his defense isn't great, but I don't think that he's an absolute sieve on that end. I think that he can compete some. I think there are certain things that uh, you know he's not great at, and possibly the knee injury could make that worse. But I think, all things considered, I think that that's the kind of guy that you want on your team in the modern NBA. So I'll go with Bogdan Bogdanovich. Yeah, well, and they kind of made a bet on him in, like they traded Herter so that they could sign DeJounte. But I think part of the reason they felt okay with offloading Herter was because they still had Bogdanovich. Yeah. He's you know, a similar he, archetype. He's just low key. He's a very underrated playmaker in yeah. the pick and roll. And can play off of a lot of different kinds of very good offensive players. Like you could see him playing off of Trey when DeJounte's off the floor and playing off of DeJounte when Trey's off the floor and, you know, running offense when neither of them are on the floor, just very solid. And to your point about him competing on defense, like he's a legit six, six. Yeah. I mean, he's a, he's a big guy. And I also wanted to, I referenced earlier in this podcast, other highlight-related gaffes. So when he gets drafted in the 20s in this draft, um, I think by the Suns, which like, and the Suns then traded him in, to the Kings in some dumb trade. But um, they're like Bogdan Bogdanovich, EuroLeague rising star, like one of Europe's best prospects. Fran Fischilla, Fischilla who's their international guy, like tell us about him. And they show a highlight pick, pick like a highlight package. And the highlight package is of Boyan Bogdan <laughs> right down, right down to the profile picture and everything. It says Bogdan, but it's Boyan. And then it's all Boyan, all of the highlights. And Boyan was the draft before, or he was two drafts before. I think he was 2012, but I could also understand because their names are so similar, I can obviously understand the mix-up, but that is absolutely hysterical that they that, that that's how tremendous. that's how invested yeah. we were in international uh, scouting, even in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Fran had a list of top six international prospects, and Jokic was not on the list. Oh my god, I forgot about that. Nurkic was on the list, Bogdanovich <laughs> was on the list, and Jokic was not even on yeah. it. Amazing, absolutely amazing. Um. Yeah. Okay, so you're up with pick 11. Oh, God, there's so many good guys still left on the board, and we're at 11. <laughs> I actually, oh, man. There are two guys that are sort of, oh, there's three. There's three I'm really messing with in my head. Um, I'll go, you know, I'll go with Gary Harris. 
I'll take Gary. Gary Harris was one of those ones where it was like, he's another what if guy because of the injuries. Like Gary Harris, when he first came into the league, like in his first few years in Denver, like he was supposed to be the guy with Jokic before they got Murray. Like he was developing at the rate that like people thought that he had star potential. And now he's become a decent role player and the injuries have still tried to derail his career. But I, I'm, I'm interested to hear why you picked Harris here. Well, so his, one of the reasons that like, you know, he falls to 19 and one of the, the things that aged the best about um, the broadcast on this draft is they were saying how good Gary Harris was yeah, and how ridiculous they, it was. Steal of the draft. That was a pretty much a consensus opinion, but uh, he could defend. Everyone knew that he could defend. He was about six, four, but he got over screens really well. Very uh, good feel on the defensive end for where to be and when to rotate when to gamble and dig, how to dig, you know, just very, very good. And uh, he has shown, you know, when he's on that he can still guard, you know, one through three pretty comfortably, which yeah. is, you know, we mentioned KCP with the Nuggets. Harris obviously used to play with Jokic, but that's the kind of guy you want playing off of a really good offensive player to fill in the gaps. And low-key, his shot kind of came back a little bit last year. Shot incredible. It's not so much that his... Yeah. It wasn't so much that his injuries sapped his athleticism. Because you remember, you know, he was still dealing with injuries and came back from injury during that Jazz Nuggets playoff series in the bubble and helped turn that series around. Fresh off of injury, just going right into playoff games. Yeah, they were down 3-1. And how he guarded Donovan Mitchell. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's really that his injuries affected his shot. Not so much the mechanics, but th there's just something about um, like the rhythm you need to have as an offensive player and sort of the confidence and balance you need to have as a jump shooter that I guess got away from him a little bit. But if he can ever get that back, you know, he averaged, I think, like 17 a night as like a 21-year-old yeah. Jokic because he could really, really shoot. And if that's back, then he is absolutely like a playoff starter caliber player. So when you, I was thinking about taking Nurkic, but Nurkic has just some endemic stuff about him being sort of a lumbering seven footer, um, where I'd rather take the shot on Harris returning to form as a wing um, on really, really good teams. It's so kind of like from the, the 2013 one when we did it, Victor Oladipo was obviously a better player than Gary Harris when he was at his peak, but it's kind of the same idea behind it. Like he can get back yeah, to being that yeah, yeah. kind of starter level player. And I think that he had some moments in the playoffs that proved that he could be. Gary Harris is still only 27 years old, by the way, somehow. He feels like he's 40. Mm -hmm. But um, okay, so the next pick. I'm conflicted here. I have a few. So I know you mentioned Nurkic. I think probably Nurkic impacts winning a lot more than some of the guys that we might pick ahead of him. But if we are thinking specifically for the playoffs, we're thinking for trying to maybe build a championship team other than maybe the Julius Randle outlier so far. I would say that I'm picking here between two former Brooklyn Nets. Or actually, Joe Harris is still on the Brooklyn Nets. But I'm picking between Spencer Dinwiddie and, and <laughs> Joe Harris here. I'm going to go with Joe Harris. Um... I actually really like Spencer Dinwiddie, and I think that he's underrated another guy who maybe injuries didn't really let him live up to his full potential because of the knee stuff. 
but Joe Harris, one of the greatest shooters of all time, like by the numbers, certainly one of the greatest shooters of all time, an amazing catch and shoot guy, incredible from the corners, a pretty decent defender, like kind of an underrated defender. I always say they underrate him because he's a white guy and, and everyone just, you know, says uh, attack, attack the white guy. And, and Joe Harris can, can hold his own uh, on that end for sure. I do think that the thing about Joe Harris that I, I wonder about is like, does the shooting always hold up when we get deeper into the playoffs, which is the one thing that I might worry a little bit about him. The one time that he did have a chance, he was terrible shooting in the Buck series. He's not an amazing free throw shooter, which is really rare for a shooter of his caliber. The large majority of guys that are shooting mm-hmm. at the clip that Joe Harris shoots at are usually shooting in the high 80s, low 90s even. And he shoots in, like, I believe the high 70s, low 80s. So that does concern me a little bit. But I do think that just, like, from a plug-and-play perspective, he can be a a great fifth starter. He can be on playoff teams, can be a guy that you can easily play on a lot of winning teams. And he fits so well with stars because of the shooting ability. And it's really unfortunate that we didn't get to see that play out with the Nets because if Harden doesn't get hurt, Kyrie, whatever – he feels like the kind of guy that just takes like your super powered offense to even the next level when the shot is falling, because it's a really a pick your poison type situation. And I would have loved to see Joe Harris when he was healthy. Another guy injuries, this fucking draft had a ton of guys who got derailed by injuries, including a guy that we haven't even taken yet. Uh, and I, I do think that, uh, I would have to go with Joe Harris here at pick 12. I believe right. we have two more 13 and 14. We're going to yeah. some, some good players are going to get cut here. Like some decent, decent players are going to get oh. cut. <laughs> I, I guess we're stopping. I was like, Oh yeah. And we're going to go to 30. Of course. You know, um, <laughs> fortunately we're two hours so in and I need to go home at some point, but <laughs> yeah. so then I'll speed it up. I'll take a uh, slow-mo I'll take Kyle Anderson. Okay. So slow-mo was a guy that I was like, he's, analytically much higher than 13 or whatever in this draft. I think analytics like him a lot more. We talked about some more. Well, yeah. Like I think you can go between him or Dinwiddie or Nurkic. I, I, any of them have a case. Um, I just like, we, we've basically made the case on Salomo already. I actually think defensively, like the very best wings he can't step to, but if he could step to the very best wings, he'd be in the top seven in this draft. I mean, it's just how it goes. You want guys who can positively impact you and stay pretty versatile during the regular season as well. I think that's sort of the area of the draft where we're in. Uh, and he's always going to do that. Very good decision maker. Um, a pretty solid shooter, just sort of a low usage guy. You know that he's not going to have a problem playing 15 or 20 minutes. But in those 15 or 20 minutes, his team is going to tend to outscore the other team. Um, Also can can still kind of basically guard, you know, two through four. On most nights, that's going to be really, really valuable. So I'm going to go with slow-mo. Honestly, like, I'm looking at this now. Here's here's who you have to pick for for the the last pick in the lottery here. I think that's, I have the last pick, right? Right now? Mm Mm-hmm. So we have Nurkic, Clarkson, Dinwiddie, Sarich, Rodney Hood, who had a decent whatever. I don't think that he's on the same level as some of these guys that I've mentioned. Dwight Powell, who's had a fine career. Like, there are guys in this draft. Once again, might be that TJ Warren, who I didn't even mention, 
once again derailed yeah. by injuries could have we never really saw what he and, could potentially become like it's and respect undrafted maxi kleber also maxi did we really not even is he in this draft He's undrafted. I don't. I don't even know if he was like signed this year. I think he was okay. signed like two or three years later. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. 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 Gotcha. I'm like, I didn't even see him on the list. Holy shit! This draft is deep. Um. Yeah. That's. <laughs> I did. I forgot to look up the undrafted guys. Unfortunately, like Tim Frazier was a guy that was undrafted. Jakar Sampson, Sixers process legend. Uh. uh last Tory Craig. Tory Craig. This draft. Yeah. I mean, that's. <laughs> we, we could have 30 rotation players from this draft, probably. If we really probably. if we really got down to it, like there are a handful of guys after this that you're like, I know, that kind of falls off. But there's a handful of guys that are still rotation players in the NBA. It's amazing. Even a guy like Shabazz Napier or Glenn Robinson, they're not in the NBA anymore, but they were rotation players for years. So mm-hmm. amazing. Mm-hmm. Um fuck, this is really hard. I'm just gonna go with Nurkic. I think that. I think that Spencer Dinwiddie probably would have been a totally fine pick here. Even Jordan Clarkson would have been a totally fine pick here. Both really good six men. I think Dinwiddie, if he doesn't have the injuries, I'd probably pick him over him. But he's just never really been quite the player because of the injuries that he could be. When he's, honestly, even those years with the Nets, he was very impressive as a pick and roll operator. Dribble shoot pass guy. Like that, that was his thing. And like Mm -hmm. at his apex which is funny to say your apex when he was on like the six seed brooklyn nets he was extremely a, a a good starter level player but i think nurkic just impacts winning more um i think that he's a, a good center he's always been a little bit underrated um i think that the concerns yes. that you do have with him it definitely later in the playoffs i totally understand that but also one of the few guys in the league that can can really match up with Jokic when he's not <laughs> fouling him every five seconds and that's an important player to have when you're playing in the western conference and you have to go up against Nikola Jokic and and those types so I'll go with Nurkic there um and I think that that about wraps it up sorry Jordan Clarkson Spencer Dinwiddie TJ Warren this draft was too fucking loaded for us to pick you yeah and I I had forgotten about TJ a little bit. Like he had floated in and out of my head. Yeah. He would probably be my next guy. I think yeah. we got the right 14. But TJ, man, before that foot injury, he was getting, like, he had just hit his prime where it's like this guy could go off for 25 yep. any night. And that's just, a, you know, at 6'8", that is an awesome player. Yeah. So it, it I sucked, I like TJ a lot. I'm Hopefully some version of this Nets team is not a complete mess. Yeah. And uh, he can contribute for them. It would be but cool. I wanted to shout him out. Everything I've heard about his foot has just been from multiple people. It just sounds really bad. And I feel horrible for him, to be yeah. honest, because he was really just coming into his own. And I hope that he can have a bounce back similar to the Oladipo thing that we talked about earlier. I hope that he can have a nice little redemption arc here in the middle of his career. But mm-hmm. Chuck, we, we like we always do. We go over two hours. We literally do this every time. It's unbelievable. I love it. Uh, Chuck. Thank you for coming on. If you guys are watching on YouTube or listening on the podcast, go subscribe to Chuck's feed. This will also be on Chuck's feed. It's an amazing podcast. I listen to it all the time. You're the guy that I go to for the draft. I really appreciate your time coming on here, and I'm glad that we were able to do this again. Thank you so much. Uh, pleasure was all mine. This is great. I'm I'm always just privileged to be part of the, the you-know-ball rocket ship because that's what you are. <laughs> 
<laughs> Thanks, bud. Oh, and by the way, call young players darts from now on. That's what I will be doing on the podcast as well. That's uh, we'll spread the brand. It's it's once you do it, it you just can't stop. Exactly. It just, it just, it's like it slot. Right. It's like slot. Dart slot. <laughs> Goes hand in hand. That's right. <laughs> All right. Peace, bud.